morning. Glad that you're here at Christ Central. And we're looking forward to opening up God's Word. My name's Joe Crummy, and I'm going to be speaking this morning. And I'm going to pick up things from where Brent left off last week. And so we're in the book of Romans in the New Testament, and now we're into chapter 3. And today, as we've been doing this series, we've entitled the series this, The Gospel of God. And that is our starting point. And so I was uh, thrilled last week to be in Nova Scotia, and Gary and I were down, and we were with the church in Wolfville, who are just about nine months old, and we were able to gather with their church to be able to explain more about what the gospel of God is and how that applies to our everyday life, both in church, but in our workplace and everything. And then we were able to continue on to Halifax to be with our church plant there with Adam and Joanna and those who are gathered. And so it was great to be with them. And they all, from both of those churches, send their love and their thanks for uh, all of our support and through our prayers and being able to send people. So it's great to be working in team together. And as we look at this gospel of God, we see that it's the gospel of God because it's God's initiative. And so we have to sort of sometimes realize, because most of the things we look at at life, we look at from our perspective, from a very human perspective. And even in our life group this week, as we were discussing the message from last week, we just realized how much we view everything from we're the starting point. And with Romans, Paul the writer, he's, his starting point is God. And that's why we call it the gospel of God, because it's God's initiative. And so it flips everything around to look at life from God's perspective. And that's really important for everything that we're going to talk about this morning, that we remember God's perspective. We're going to look at it from our perspective, and sometimes our perspective doesn't make sense. And that's because we need to look at it from God's perspective. It's good news for all people because God's taking the initiative to come and to help us. And Brent last week went through a very difficult, really, passage about how before God, no one is righteous. No one has right standing before God, because we've either done one of two things. Either we've sinned against God, and that can come in all kinds of different ways. That can come by ignoring God. That can become by putting other things first before God, and we fall short of the glory of God, and we sin against each other. And as we do that, we're sinning against God. And so I think if we were all honest with one another, no matter how good we might think we are, we would all say, but I'm not perfect. And I think we'd be probably a little bit arrogant if we thought we're perfect. And if you want to prove that, all you'd have to do is hang out for 24 hours with somebody else, and I can guarantee it would almost prove that you're not perfect. And that's the starting point, is that Paul says that no one is righteous. We've either sinned against God, we've sinned against each other, and, by ex- and Brent went through the extent of sin, the effect of sin, and the consequences of sin. And the consequences of sin are we're separated from God, and sin separates us from one another. So we need a solution. We need a hero. We need a rescue. We need someone to intervene in our state that we find ourselves in. And that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. We cry out, who's going to help us? Who's going to set things right? Because we live in a messed up world. We know that. We live in a messed up world. And there's something within us that cries out, who's going to set things right? Who's going to bring back paradise? Who's going to bring everything back into order? Both in my life, my family, city, province, nation, nations, in the cosmos. Who's going to set things right? There's that cry in our heart. Something isn't right. Who's going to set it right? 
And thankfully, as Brent last week painted that black, bleak picture, it shows how great and how exciting and how thrilling the gospel of God really is, because it really is the only hope we have. It's good news. So we're going to pick things up, Romans 3, and we're going to pick it up at verse 20, where Brent left off last week, and we're going to read uh, five more verses after that. And so this is, again, Paul writing to the church in Rome, and we're going to pick up the tail end of where he left off last week, and he says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, that's God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we're just explaining, Paul saying, no one can get right before God through the law, because if you break the law, just one thing, it's like you've broken the whole thing. And the law is actually given to show right from wrong, and it leads us to knowing that we need a Savior. And we love this in the Bible, but, ooh, it's such a great word, and but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And we'll come back and we'll define some of these terms for you. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins, speaking of things in the Old Testament. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Woo! Those are like probably the five verses of the Bible that are just so amazing. And what we're going to try to do this morning is I'm going to try to help with a dependence on the Holy Spirit to flesh out and apply these incredible great truths. Because sometimes they include words that we don't often use in our everyday language, and we might miss out on just the depth of the riches of God's kindness to us. And so today we're going to look at God's righteousness, the righteousness of God, and it's from God, and how we receive that righteousness. So first of all, the question is, what is righteousness? And there are a couple ways we can look at. One I think that most people may think of when they think of righteousness, it's this. It's God's right moral character, His holiness and His justice. We just talk about the righteousness of God. There's no one else. God is holy, set apart. There's no one else like God. And that is the righteousness of God. But it's also this. It's a position. So righteousness, if you can think of it this way, and we talk about it, our little definition, it's right standing with God. Therefore, there's nothing that separates us in our position. We're acceptable. There's nothing that disqualifies us. We're acceptable, and we have a position right standing with God. And it's a legal term. So sometimes you might be in a situation that uh, you don't, maybe you've gone someplace and you've entered in a secure area, and you didn't even realize it, and the security guard might come and say, stop, what right do you have to be here? (laughs) What right do you have? And we could say, what right do we have to be in God's presence? How did we get right standing with God? So think of it this way, and John Wah, thank you for being obedient this morning. It always takes great courage for people to share 
on a Sunday morning in front of a couple hundred people. And what John Moss shared fits perfect into what I want as my intro. And John was just sharing, and I'll talk about it this way, to use this example. Okay, if you're applying for a job, one of the terms we can sometimes use is we're applying for a position. We're applying for a role. We're applying for a position. And good news this week, Seb was just sharing what he got a job. Congratulations, Sebastian, getting a job. Just a little encouragement there. And if you apply for a position, what do you usually do? You submit your, your resume. And what does your resume include? It includes this. It includes all of your performance, all of your education, all of your skills, all of your volunteer work, all of your good works, and you're submitting it for that position, hoping, and you're really hoping, that what you have presented in your resume qualifies you. I think that's a word we just heard, isn't it, John? That qualifies you for that position. And you're hoping that as you submit your resume, really what you're doing is, look at me, accept me. And you're hoping it's better than everybody else's. <sighs> And you don't include in your resume things that would disqualify you from that position. You kind of leave those out. <laughs> so you choose your references very wisely. <laughs> so your resume includes everything that's going to make you acceptable, and it excludes anything that might disqualify you from that position. And does that sound familiar when you think about religion and belief systems? that we're not submitting our performance from our vocation, but what we are doing is we're submitting our performance from a moral point of view or a spiritual point of view. And we're hoping and believing that our good works are going to be at least pretty much better than everybody else's. And we're hoping that when we submit this to God, that our moral good works and our spirituality and our good attitudes and our all those different things, we submit them to God, and we're hoping our performance record will be better than most so that we can say to God, please accept me. And two things happen when we have that attitude. We go to two extremes that John just talked about. One is, we can get overconfident in our resume. <laughs> we can think, well, actually, I'm a pretty good person. And when you look at what's going on in the world, I've never committed murder, I've never done any of these things, and so I'm pretty good. So I'm pretty confident in my resume. Or we can go to the other extreme and say, I don't stand a chance. How can I ever get that position? I'm not even qualified. I got nothing to show. I don't even have a reference to give. I haven't done anything hardly good. So we don't even think about that we could even get close to this position because we disqualified ourselves because my resume is no good. And that's what we can find ourselves in if we think of getting right with God is on our performance. We can be overconfident. I don't need a savior. Why do we, as long as we're nice to people, that's our biggest thing. I had a big discussion with someone this week. Their biggest thing was, as long as my standard is, as long as you're trying to be nice to someone, that's what God really cares about. And it's kind of hard to argue that at times, isn't it? Because it sounds so nice. Until we realize the word nice isn't even in the Bible. And who gets to define nice? Or we can disqualify ourselves. If you knew my background, if you knew my past, God couldn't even do anything with me. 
And that's the state we find ourselves. But in verse 21, Paul introduces this. But now. But now. For the first time in history, an unheard of approach to God has been revealed. A perfect right standing with God. A perfect righteousness. A perfect record. The righteousness of God is now given to us. It's not earned. And God developed in Jesus a righteousness that is offered to us freely, and by it we are accepted. We exchange our resume for the resume of Jesus. Wow. So I don't know if you've ever had this situation. Let me just, I'm going right ahead here. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where maybe your identity was confused with somebody else's. And that can work for you or against you. And when I was in school, back in Pugwash, there was a girl in the school, her name was Jody Cummings. And my name at the time, it switched somehow in university, was Joey Crummy. So I know anyone who knows me from Pugwash calls me Joey still. And we were in a school like this, a little bit smaller, and the acoustics weren't very good when the announcements came over the speaker. Okay, did anyone ever have this experience? Because it was always jumbled. And we would hear this. Well, Joey, let me please come to the office. <laughs> You're like, did that say Joey Crummy? Well, Joey, let me please come to the office. I heard the police come to the office. We always miss. Guess what happened every time? Jody Cummings and I, it's like at the office, we would both meet and say, Jody, was that you or was that? We always got our identities mixed up because we couldn't understand. Jesus comes with a resume that's perfect. And we're going to look at this morning three words that Paul uses to talk about this great exchange. I think all these things were shared somewhere in the morning, weren't they? That he takes on our identity and we take on his identity. So you ready? We're going to look at three key words, three pictures that Paul paints to illustrate what happened. And the first one is he uses this word justified, justification, and are justified by his grace as a gift. And again, it's a legal term. So some of you, whew, I've been uh, in court many times, not necessarily for myself personally, <laughs> speaking of resumes, <laughs> But in the courtroom a lot, helping people, being there as support, because many of our people have been in courts for various things. It's an intimidating place. So lawyers, police officers, I don't know how you do it, because it's, I just walk in, I'm not even there for anything, but I feel intimidated. And we use these legal terms that Paul brings in, and he says this, he uses the word justified. Now here's what I want to make a distinction on. Sometimes justified gets used, and it's explained this way, it's like a pardon, now, there's part of that that's true, so let me just explain this to you, but it goes beyond a pardon. So sometimes you might have heard somebody was guilty for something, and they paid their time or they paid their fine, and they're pardoned, so that way it's like wiped away, it's not on their record anymore. There's a forgiveness part to it. Now, justification includes that, but guess what? They were still guilty. They actually did a crime. Justification goes beyond that and says, you, weren't, you didn't even ever commit a crime, do you follow me on that? So it goes beyond just being pardoned. Uh-oh, what did I do? Oh, forget it. That's all right. You guys, you're going to have to really take notes now. <laughs> Justified is not just pardoned, like you did something wrong and then you were forgiven. Justification is this. And I know it sounds chintzy, but folks, you gotta, it will help you remember it. 
Okay? Justif- justification is this, just as if I never sinned. I know it sounds chintzy. I know it sounds religious. Forget it. It will help you remember. Because if I were to ask you, what does justification mean? You'd be kind of like, oh, well, yeah. So, just as if I never sinned. Now, we're going to expand that, but you just think about that for a second. Not only are you pardoned, you know I'm guilty, but we've been forgiven. Justification goes, it's even a stronger term. It's like you didn't even do anything to even be charged. That's the term that Paul uses. Justified. You are justified by His grace as a gift. It's a very legal term. Oh, thanks, whoever is sorting out these things. Bless you. There we go. We'll see if we can keep going. Just as if I'd never sinned. Now, folks, I'm going to try to give an illustration, so you've got to really work with me and pay attention. I'm going to give an illustration, and if you can do this, if you can picture yourself in a courtroom, which isn't that hard to do in this room, <laughs> and say, and you've got to use your imagination here, say you're on trial, so you're in the docket, all right? You're in the dock, and you're on trial for crimes that you've committed, and Jesus is the judge and the jury. So I'm starting to get nervous already. And we're awaiting his decision on the charges that are against you. Because Brent read this last week from Romans 2.16. On that day, so the day coming, we're going to be judged by God. According to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't get your heart racing a little bit, that my secrets are going to be judged by God through Jesus Christ. That's a wake-up call to say, I need a different resume. Because I might fool all of you by looking pretty good, but God judges the secrets of our heart. That's a sobering thing. And we know that if we're on trial, we're going to be guilty because we've, somehow we've rebelled against God. You can call it nice other things. We've missed the mark. We've missed deeds. Folks, if we have idols and we all that, we've rebelled against God. And the Bible says this, that the penalty for that charge is this, it's death. It's already been set. And in a court of law, we want justice to be served, don't we? We expect justice. If someone's guilty, justice is they pay the penalty for what they've done wrong. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. Jesus is the judge and jury. We're in the dock. We're guilty, and we're awaiting the sentence, and we know the sentence is death. Now, if you can picture that for a second, just keep with me. Paul says the scene changes, and Jesus goes from being the judge and the jury. He comes out of the jury and judge box, and what does he become? He becomes our defense lawyer. Now, how do I know that? Because John wrote this in 1 John 2, 1. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we have a defense lawyer who comes out from being the judge and jury, who comes now, and now the Father is the judge and jury, and with Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he comes, and he's our defense lawyer. Hallelujah! We might stand a chance now. (laughs) Can you get the picture? Jesus has gone from judge and jury. He's now our advocate. He's our defense lawyer, and he's pleading for us, and now with the Father, 
being the judge. And Jesus says this, there's new evidence I want to enter that will reverse the initial verdict. Woo! The reporters are really getting ready now. There's new evidence that's been entered that will reverse the initial verdict. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus himself was put on trial and declared innocent of any crime. He had lived a perfect life and had kept the law and was declared righteous. And Jesus now brings that righteousness from God into the courtroom, and he tells the judge that it is ours because we have trusted in his gospel. Phil Moore in his commentary says this, The accused is guilty through his own deeds. Let me say that again. The accused, us, were guilty through our own deeds, but deemed entirely innocent through the deeds of another. Hallelujah. Now, some of you are good legalists, you understand law, and at this point you would do this. Objection! There's got to always be an objection. If the accused is guilty as charged, then the judge can't simply pretend these actions never happened. Where is the justice? Because do you remember last week Brent said this from Romans 2.6, Paul said, God will give to each person according to what he has done. As I say, we're going to be accountable for the lives that we have lived, our actions, our attitudes. God will give to each person according to what he has done. And Jesus replies by telling God the Father, the judge, that his argument rests on the fact that through the gospel, Jesus and the accused, us, possess one legal identity. And it's interesting, Gary's not here this morning, out in Vancouver, Gary's favorite verse. 1 Corinthians 1.30. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Can I say that again? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, Jesus has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Jesus is convicted and condemned to die because of our guilt, and we are justified and exonerated because of his innocence. And folks, this not guilty verdict that is given to us, it's once and for all decision. That's what we need to get into us. We have been vindicated of every charge, past, present, and future, so that no one can lodge a new accusation against us. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no longer any condemnation. And justice is served because God is holy and just, but Jesus paid the penalty. So justice is served. God in his justice, he... Because if God changed his character, how could you trust God, right? but yet God's love and mercy is demonstrated and that we go free. So the justice of God and the love of God are found in Jesus at the cross. It's amazing. And in that illustration, I don't want you to think that God the Father judge is angry and hates us, waiting, and oh, 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 Jesus, I hated them, but oh, Jesus convinced me that no, God the judge loved us, 
That's why he made a way <laughs> for us to be right with him. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, God sent his son out of love in order to make a way for us to have right standing with him. That's what it means to be united by faith in the gospel of God's Son, that we're justified just as if I had never sinned. And when we say it's scandalous, it is. It's scandalous. But justice is served and the love of God is demonstrated. Folks, that's one word. Just trying to give you one picture justified. It's just a few words. We're justified freely by His grace, but the weight of that word justified is amazing. The second picture is this. We're going to keep going. Paul says, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. What's the next word? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this is the second picture that we have and redemption is another word that we don't always use, and the illustration or the little definition I'm giving is not an exhaustive one, but I'm just trying to get words that you can remember. Justify, just as if I'd never sinned. Redemption, it's to buy back, it's to purchase. And we've been redeemed. Now, if you were a Roman Gentile, when Paul was writing this, the whole word redemption is a dirty word. Because the Romans were in charge. They ruled the world. <laughs> they didn't have anything to worry about as far as being redeemed. Because redemption and being redeemed has to deal with this in their culture. It would be this. If you were a helpless slave, you would have to be redeemed. If you were a prisoner of war, you could be bought back. If you were a convicted criminal, you could be bought off. And the Romans weren't in any position to any of those. But if you were a Jewish Roman, the word redemption brought a whole different thing to mind. What do you think it reminded them of from their history? The Exodus. Thank you, someone over here. For the Roman Jews, redemption reminded them of how God provided freedom from them being enslaved in Egypt and bringing them out into freedom, into liberty, and into the promised land. So the word redemption actually was full of great connotations for the Roman Jew. God demonstrated his power over Egypt's idols, both by the ten plagues, but he also did this. He paid a ransom to legally get them out of Egypt. And folks, whether we realize it or not, the Bible says that out of Christ, we're slaves to sin. We're captive to the prince of this world. So we might not like it. It goes against our pride. But folks, we're outside of Christ we're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to passions and worldly passions. We're captive to the devil. And we need to be redeemed. And we see this in the Old Testament. Is that even though God did show his power, those ten plagues, you remember them all, we even did a series on Moses a couple years ago, and God showed his power. But God didn't get the people out from his power. What did he do? He legally purchased them. And how did he purchase them? Do you remember what happened on the night when the angel of death was coming? God told the people this, you take a lamb and you kill the lamb and you take the blood and you put it over the doorpost and when the angel of death goes through, and this is where we get the term Passover, if he sees the blood on your door, the angel will pass over 
and your firstborn will live. So Jesus, God freed the Israelites through a ransom. The lambs were the ransom price. He legally freed them because someone paid the price. The lamb paid the price. And Paul points, and he says in the New Testament that that whole thing in the Old Testament of the lamb, the Passover lamb being slain, was pointing to a picture of God's son who was God's firstborn. Not that he was the first, but it was God's chosen beloved son. That later Jesus dying on a wooden cross would be doing it to buy freedom for God's people. And that's why John the Baptist said when Jesus first came on the scene this minute, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you see where the pictures and the words that we use in our worship songs, we can be singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You're kind of going like, what are we talking about? This is what we're talking about. Worthy is Jesus who was the Lamb who was slain. He was killed. So Old Testament's pointing to Jesus, New Testament. In Christ, his blood that was shed saves us. And if you follow along the story in the Old Testament, what did God do? Not only did God save them from death, but he brought them through the Red Sea and into freedom for their captives. And he opened the Red Sea, and their former slave masters were drowned. And when they got to the other side, what they do? They praise God. Because he had redeemed them. He had ransomed them. He had purchased them. And their response was praise. In the New Testament, we too, through Christ's death and resurrection, and this is why baptism is so important, we're baptized with Christ. It shows that we're united with Christ that we're united in his death, we die to these things, but we're also, we're united with him in his life and resurrection. And in Christ, we have been ransomed and redeemed and purchased through the death of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul later can say, you've been bought with a price. You no longer belong to yourself. And what have we been bought with? First Peter says this, we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. It's imperishable. You didn't get bought with silver or gold. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. That's why our songs have so much to do with blood. I know it's gruesome, but that's how it is. Because it goes beyond being bought with silver or gold. We've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28 to his followers, why did Jesus come? And if you start Alpha, you're going to learn more about this come Monday. Jesus came, Jesus said this, to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to purchase and to buy back. So folks, this is really key. This picture of redemption reveals that the gospel is not just about forgiveness, which it is, but it's also about freedom. That yes, we're counted righteous despite our past, hallelujah, but we can be free from sin's power in the present. That we can be free from captivity to the kingdom of darkness. And if you follow this series on, we got more to come in chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 about that freedom. But it's important. You're not just forgiven. You are freed. So it's not just your past dealt with. It affects your present everyday life. 
Because in your kingdom, broken lives are made new. Because we can be free from the past. The second picture of redemption informs us that Jesus has shattered Satan's rule and has freed us to live under the rule of the new king of our lives. And that's why we're doing a whole conference on the kingdom of God. Because we need to know what the kingdom of God is and how that affects our everyday life. So we're taking an intense chunk of time with a great teacher within our family of churches to talk about the kingdom of God. That's why it's so important. That's why one of the reasons of many that we want you there in May. Because I'll leave this picture with Paul writing to Titus. We're forgiven just as if I'd never sinned. We're justified. We're redeemed. We're bought back from sin and Satan and slavery and captivity. And that freedom now is to live a life that pleases God. So Paul could say this to Titus in chapter 2. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and women. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So yes, I want you to be nice. (laughs) But I want it to be what God wants us to be with his empowerment and freedom to be able to do good as God wants us to do. So we're going to get to our third word. So we've been justified just as if I'd never sinned. We've been redeemed. We have redemption. We've been bought back. We've been purchased. And the next word that Paul uses, and it's a little bit different and it's tricky because different translation uses different words. And it says, For we've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's the ESV. If you had an NIV and some other translations, it reads this. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. So Paul picks a different angle for his third gospel picture or gospel word. And Paul tells us that Jesus traded places with us. So let me flesh that out. So if you went back into the book of Leviticus, and I know Emma just read that recently from one of the things she shared, God gave instructions to the priests, and we don't have time to get into all the details, but it does fit as we're going to share communion. The priests were to enter the holy place, and in that, in the tabernacle and the temple was the Holy of Holies. And on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, they were to take two goats, and they killed one, and they took the blood, and they were to go in, the high priest was to go in, and he was to sprinkle the blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is translated the atonement cover or the mercy seat. Those are the connections. And that was to cleanse people of the people of God, for their sin for that year. And the priest had to do it for himself because he wasn't perfect, and then he did it on behalf of the people. And Paul points Jesus' death back to the Day of Atonement by using the same Greek word, that sacrifice of atonement. It's used, that atonement, the propitiation. It's like there was a payment made, and God was satisfied with that payment because 
the blood of the goat was switched for our blood. There was a trading that took place. And Paul tells us that those blood sacrifices, those animal sacrifices in the place of the people was really pointing to the gospel and what Jesus was going to do on the cross. And Jesus has taken our place so that not only does he die the death we should have, but we also live the life that Jesus lived in order to please God. Because Jesus' life was all about pleasing his Father. Therefore, there's a new life in the kingdom of God with a rich king full of praise, thanksgiving, and joy. And we get to enjoy a new life in Christ instead of being dead in our sins. There's been a great exchange that God has, Jesus has traded places with us. He's our substitution. And Jesus dying on the cross fulfilled the penalty and the punishment for the wrath of God, and God was satisfied with the payment in Jesus. That's the propitiation. The payment was accepted, and this great exchange took place. Do you see the richness of what Jesus has done? We've just taken three words here, and I'm not even doing justice to any of them, but I'm just trying to give you some things that you can concretely hold on to. You've been justified by his grace freely, just as if I'd never sinned. That's like, we've been redeemed. Jesus has paid the price. He's bought us back. We've been purchased. So we're no longer a free agent. We're no longer captive to sin or to Satan. We've been purchased to belong to God, to enjoy God. We've been substituted. There's been a great exchange that has taken place. John Stott says this in his book on the cross about substitution. He says, quote, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at, at the heart of both sin and salvation. Follow me? For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Let me say that again. For the essence of sin is man, men and women, you and I, substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. That's the great substitution that has taken place. On the Day of Atonement, two goats were killed, or sorry, two goats were taken. One was killed, the blood was put on the mercy seat on the atonement cover. On the other one, all the sins were confessed, and that goat was the scapegoat that took away, that expiated, it took away, it removed the sin and the shame. And God was satisfied with those sacrifices. You know what's interesting? When all that was done, guess what came next on the Day of Atonement? It's also the day when the trumpet sounded. After all that, and the trumpet sounded to announce the year of Jubilee. When the slaves were freed, the poor were made rich, and the beggars were extended the favor of God. 
So folks, all three pictures, and I know we're going to get ready for communion, all three of those words, those pictures I'm trying to give you, describe the gospel of God. It's a righteousness of God. It's a righteousness from God. So we might be able to stand in relationship with God, before God, forgiven, accepted, favored, and it's amazing. We actually get to enjoy God. We get to delight in God. We get to be happy in God. So in closing, Paul also shares how do we get this righteousness. How do we get the righteousness of God from God? Briefly, quickly, four quick things, and I don't have time to go over them all, but it's important just to say them, and Paul says it in these verses. First, he says, this righteousness of God and from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So, our righteousness, and this is important, is not based on how great our faith is. Our righteousness is based on how great Jesus is. That's why it's so, I love our name, Christ Central. He is central. So, it's important not to measure my faith, but the object of my faith, which is Jesus Christ. Can I just give you a silly illustration? This is what I mean by that, okay? I can strap on wings, and I can have great faith that I can fly. I got great faith. It's my faith, but the object of it is me with some feathery wings on. I can be scared of flying. I can have no faith. I don't even know who the pilot is. No offense, Pete Chalmers, former pilot. And I can get on one of those big jumbo jets, and I might have little faith that I'm going to get there, but I'm pretty secure in all the things that I'm putting my object, the object of my faith. Folks, we can, if we look at our faith and say, well, I don't know if I'm feeling like I'm believing, say all these things, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the object of our faith. Righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's why it doesn't matter your background. So it's more than just, you got to have faith. No, it's who you're putting your faith in. You're putting your faith in a person, Jesus Christ. Secondly, righteousness does not come through our own actions or efforts. I hope we've explained that over and over again. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short. Brent, last week, he's going to drown in a second. Tim's a little bit better, and Bear Grylls is going to hopefully make it a day or two, right? In the desert, sorry. Mixing up my illustrations. Going through the desert... Brent doesn't stand a chance. Tim might make it a little bit. He's a little bit better shaped than Brent is. But Bear Grylls, he might last a couple days. After a week, they're all dead, and they're all dead. They all fall short. They're dead. Our righteousness doesn't come for our own efforts. Thirdly, righteousness, it comes from God. It's freely given. It's freely given. So don't make our faith some sort of work. Faith is this. Faith is like, God, I can't do it. I come empty with nothing to give you, but my hands and my heart are wide open. I receive. That's freely receiving. Tear up the resume. Humble yourselves and receive freely. Don't try to get your house in order first. Don't try to clear up the resume. Come and receive freely. It's a gift from God, but we have to humble ourselves. Fourth thing, righteousness comes through faith and Christ's work on the cross is shed blood. Can I just say this in closing? 
lots of people believe in God, and lots of people will say, I believe in God. I put my trust in God. Folks, the gospel is offensive because it doesn't just say, put your trust in God, believe in God. It gets very specific. We put our faith and our trust in Jesus' blood. So it's very specific. So it's very cool in our world to talk about God, and you won't get persecuted for talking about God. You won't. You can put anything on Facebook. You can just talk, I believe in God, I trust in God. Great. You start talking about Jesus, things change. You start talking about, no, I'm putting my faith in, what's this? I'm putting my faith in the righteousness that, of God that comes from God through Christ's work on the cross, his shed blood. That's messy. That's offensive. It's a stumbling block for many. And as we come to communion, what are we doing? We're saying, I remember and I confess that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed on the cross for him to pay the penalty for my sin and the great exchange has taken place and I put my faith in his work that he did on the cross. I put my faith on his performance and it's very specific. I put my faith in his blood that was shed. So it gets rid of this sort of like define God however you want to define God. We put our faith in Jesus Christ in his shed blood. Paul was very specific in that. So a quick review. Religion is this. We must develop a righteousness. We must develop a resume and offer it to God and hope it's better than most people and hopefully will be accepted. And we hide the stuff that shouldn't be in there and we promote the stuff that should. The gospel of God says this, that God offers his righteousness to us through Christ by faith and by it we are accepted. That's why Paul can end about God being both just and the justifier. Justice is served, mercy and love is extended. And I'll close with a verse, or a thing, I love how God does this. Facebook, last thing, Gospel Coalition, last night, they just put up one sentence, and I'm just like, it's my whole message. How awesome is that? Somebody was like, I'm prompted by God to put this on. And this is all it said, and I'm going to close with this. If you are a Christian, you are saved from God. That is, you're saved from his justified wrath. You are saved by God. That's you're saved by Jesus' sacrifice. And you are saved for God, for his delight and praise. We're saved from God, from his wrath. We are saved by God through Christ's sacrifice. We are saved for God, for his delight and praise. Hallelujah. Folks, the gospel is the good news of God. It's for all who believe. It's found in Jesus Christ. That's where we put our hope and our trust. So I'm going to pray. Joel's going to get ready to help us. Worship team can get ready as we respond to this invitation today. So let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you today that there is a righteousness of God that is from God, and you've made a way for us to receive it freely. 
And God, we're so thankful this morning. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come and do what only you can do, that you would open up hearts to see Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as Lord and Savior. I pray that you would come and bring conviction from pride or maybe even from being feeling too disqualified to know that this is for all who believe on Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for salvation today, that people even for the first time would be justified, redeemed, that the great substitution would take place today. And I pray for those of us who that's already happened, that we would live in the good of these great truths in the living person, Jesus Christ, today. I pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe.